0: You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Sam Hathelby to talk to us about the rise of the Christian right in America and also talk to us about whether or not Ivy Leagues should be abolished. So thank you for joining us, Sam. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really, I'm really honored.
0: Yeah, I've like read a lot of your articles. I just, I never put your face to your name. I believe you're the one who wrote the article about the first Ramadan in the continental US, right?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I, I also wrote that one. Yes.
0: That was one of my favorites.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for reading. I appreciate it.
0: So, how did you get interested in this topic of religion and history, or at least American religious nationalism?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, I was really interested in nationalism first. I, I got interested in American nationalism first, and that was what led me to religion. Actually, so I'm a latecomer to religion. I wasn't, unlike a lot of people in the field, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't raised in a Religious family, and I didn't have any religious education <laughs> at all, <laughs> so I only uh, got interested in it um, in in um, graduate school
0: and you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East in Beirut and Cairo. What led you there?
1: Well, three years um, I wanted to stay longer, but it didn't work out that way, but yeah, three years feels like enough time, i think just barely to say like a real amount of time in some place. <laughs> So yeah, I was teaching at the American universities there, the American University in Beirut uh, first, and, and then the American University in Cairo, which was interesting for me for a lot of reasons, because one of which is because I had never been to the Middle East until I moved there for a job at Beirut, but two, also because I had a kind of intellectual professional interest in that. Those universities were founded by American missionaries whom I had written about and and researched uh, in some depth.
0: Okay, so I guess Christianity started in the Middle East, but it moved all over the world and each area has its own peculiar form of Christianity. So what's unique about the form of Christianity in the United States?
1: Well, that's a great question. (laughs) Unique is a strong word, so I, I, I don't know if I'll say unique, but I think I can say some uh, basic things about it that are unusual or distinctive. Um, maybe the one way to think of it, just to start, is that it, it, it's, it has a bit of a peculiar role because the U.S. has this distinction of being first the, 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 the first modern republic founded on, on disestablishment, on separation of church and state. And the history of secularism and a secular state. I mean, the United States was in some somewhat technical sense, but real sense, the first secular, modern, independent country. And then secondly, it also has the distinction of being very soon after that the most religious political democracy in the world, along with, of course, as you, as you all know, along with India. So, yeah, I think a lot about India and the U.S. in the last several years as these two similar types of right-wing some in some ways similar. Let's say their political constituencies are similar. They themselves are, are are not that similar. Um, but these two right wing religious nationalist movements have been one the the Christians, the Protestants, Protestant evangelicals in the U.S. and two the of course the Hindu nationalists in India. So I don't think this is a coincidence that these are the kind of parts, major parts of the constituency for, for Donald Trump and and uh, Narendra Modi.
0: So. Early on in your book, you talk about the privatization of a religion in America. So how is that different than what people in Europe experienced?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good question. So most people in Europe had a state church um, and the U.S. was put in this strange situation um, or found itself after its founding in this, this somewhat unusual situation very unusual. I don't want to say unique again, but very unusual situation of not having a state church and at the same time embarking on on this massive project of colonizing most of North America. Now, in the, the general pattern in European imperialism was to colonize with the state and with the church. <laughs> mm-hmm. and And uh, the u s. starts starts, continues that that Anglo project of colonization of North America. and in, in fact, the u s speeds it up. It's, it wants to go faster than the British do, but they, they undertake it without a state church. So as a result, you have a kind of privatization of religion uh, in, in the sense that it, it becomes, I think a better word for it maybe, is it becomes a kind of product of this somewhat like basically libertarian project of colonizing North America, because there wasn't much of a state either. Um, the state, the, the early United States had a, had a pretty weak federal state, the big thing they did in the first half of the 19th century was land surveying. That was their main, land surveying and delivering the mail were the two main activities, along with occasionally raising militias to wage wars of dispossession and extermination on Native peoples. Uh, but those are really the only three things they did in any with any consistency. So as a result of this, this absence of having much state power and no state church, and, and this huge and pretty unrestrained project of colonizing North America, religious groups step into the void of that kind of crisis, really, because the, the political leaders of the U.S. considered it, a, a, the colonization of North America, a really major crisis. They were very, very worried about it and, and about uh, what kinds of changes it would bring. At the same time, they were dependent upon the land, first, just to pay back Revolutionary War debts uh, in the in the immediate aftermath of the American Revolution, and then secondly, uh, the kind of land hunger just in general for the settler population and the migrant population was was extraordinary. And of course, it, the land of North America was, you know, is the material foundation of uh, one of them of the country's wealth. There was there was nothing in nineteenth century colonization anywhere in the world like the agricultural richness of the Ohio River Valley and the Mississippi Delta. But you didn't have a lot of state authority and you didn't have a state church. So one of the things you get from that situation, which is what I call kind of the libertarian approach to colonization, a weak state and no state church. You, but you, one of the things you get from that is this just absolute proliferation of all kinds of different religious groups, just dozens and dozens and dozens of, of uh, sectarian religious phenomena flourish. Uh, in this time.
0: After reading your book, I got the impression that even though Christianity itself was not a state religion, it, C- Christian doctrine and Christian propaganda, or at least the like, bringing Christianity to these people was kind of the excuse used for the early and late and even current colonization project. So that's right. how did that happen? And what were the disparate um, sects that came out of that time period
1: of the of the earliest period. You mean of the colonial period or of the of the, uni- the early U.S. history of, uh, of, of the, the
0: early nineteenth century U.S. Early
1: nineteenth century, yes. Um, scholars of American religion have long referred to the early nineteenth century United States as, as as the formative period of uh, the history of American religion or the basis of American Christianity, um, and scholars of history of World religions have also been interested in it because, because of its extraordinary sectarian and religious creativity and flourishing. The, the Mormons come from there, the Millerites, the Methodists.
0: Can you talk about each one briefly? Because a lot of people don't understand how important the colonization project is to the Mormon doctrine. Right. Would you mind expounding on it just a little?
1: Sure. No, not at all. Um, One interesting way, maybe helpful way to put it, is to compare them to the Puritans. Um, So the Puritans come, as you know, in the 17th century, and they develop in their religion and in their culture, this whole kind of intellectual apparatus of colonization and possession and and domination, with this sense of themselves at the center of this narrative that they have this really kind of theological in, in the true sense of the word or maybe a better way to say it is cosmological sense of their role uh, in the center of this history of, of colonizing this this continent and, and saving the world really it wasn't so much about the continent per se as it was about catalyzing uh, mass conversion to save the world and then the mormons come 200 years plus later mm-hmm. and they have a similar kind of cosmological and theological sense of their role in, in the colonization of North America, except unlike the Puritans, the Mormons did it much, much faster. They moved across two-thirds of North America uh, within 50, 40 or 50 years. So I'd say both of those religions really, I mean, there's, it's sometimes said, and I think this might be true, that the, one of the, the three things that will outlast the United States are... Uh, Western films, jazz music, and Mormonism.
0: Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I I know we're a little skipping around. Uh, We're not exactly going in the order of your book. I hope that's okay. Um,
1: We're we're free to roam wherever you you like.
0: (laughs) Okay, so you also talk about in the late, I guess, in the mid to late 1800s, Mm-hmm. There were a few colonial organizations like the American Bible Society and the American Foreign Missions that uh, were kind of mission of conquest under the guise of
1: mm-hmm.
0: Christianity. Like, how mm-hmm. did they come about and what did they do?
1: Well, that really goes back to my original kind of interest in this stuff was nationalism. Um, they, they were uh, intensely nationalistic organizations and
0: hold on Emma, what exactly is nationalism for those who may not be too familiar because I've seen so many different usages um can you just like briefly explain what it is before we talk about it
1: well in the sense that I understand it and use it in 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 the book the Jessica but there's no consensus on what nationalism is uh, so many people will disagree with this but I the sense I use it in that is is basically that it means that the cultural community and the political community must coincide. And that is the highest political obligation, one that you have to kill and die for. So it takes precedence over religious affiliations, family relationships, friendships, that obligation to the state really becomes the, the mortal and existential obligation. Uh, And, and it brings with it this project of nationalism of making people more the same.
0: Okay um one question was that around the same time that America was getting industry similar to that from England not from England but similar to that that existed in England yes. like okay
1: yes yes so i mean it's all very uh, happening very fast in the 19th century and that association between nationalism and capitalism is one that a lot of scholars believe is innate or or mutually dependent how so in part that it takes the modern industrial technology, at least it was in the capitalist form at the time in England and the Netherlands and early United States, in order to kind of produce the literatures and communication technologies that make nationalism ah,
0: possible. Okay, I never thought about the propaganda aspect also. Yeah, so
1: that's that's a huge part of it. <laughs>
0: because before you had to, well, before the automatic printing press you kind of had to have scribes copy everything down but then you had the old fashioned printing press from europe and then exactly you got the one that can print out like thousands of sheets in a in a few hours and that's
1: well this is again this is one view of nationalism that it that it has a natural and and deep relationship with capitalism this is one view of nationalism it happens to be mine there are others But I'm very much from the Benedict Anderson and Eric Hobsbawm school on these things. And and especially the printing technology is considered important because the idea being that people have to be reading a lot of the same things to be able to be nationalized, much less or become nationalists, and sort of produce literature and and newspapers and novels and tracts and and Bibles at a scale capable of uh, reaching a large number of people uh, is, is important.
0: You mention Yale and Connecticut wit as some kind of foundational doctrine on this nationalist propaganda or at least like an organization. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. that that um, as is kind of uh, and I don't know, I think this goes back to the the literary and the reading aspect of it. Uh, but a lot of early nationalist movements, historically. Uh, a lot of the first nationalist movements historically came from, from literary and political reading groups and, and clubs and associations. There were a lot of these types of social activity that, that are, are really play a prominent role as nurseries or, or origins of, of nationalist movements and nationalist visions. And one one of them, the earliest one that I've been able to find with one or two, one maybe the exception of Benjamin Franklin, but he's not a group. Uh, (laughs) But but this literary uh, movement in Connecticut in the mid 18th century, it's sometimes called, although nobody really remembers it anymore, but because it's very unfashionable, but they were known as the Connecticut Wits and they were, they were America's first literary movement in the sense of the first group of writers who, thought of themselves self-consciously as a literary movement with a political vision.
0: And so, what role did they play in the colonial projects? And what, what was their role? Yeah. With-
1: the, well, they they basically were huge Christian nationalists. They were really, and <laughs> really, uh, not really Christian, but they were really very acute the Protestant nationalists. They were pretty interesting. Um, they were terrible writers, to be honest. <laughs> um, they wrote a lot of poetry, um, oh god. especially classical and epic poetry.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And I spent about a year, more than a year, reading a lot of their poetry on, on a fellowship I had. Um, so I think it's a bit like like studying Churchill's paintings or his oh god or something. Like you, can, <laughs> you can get into it if you have other interests, but it's just really terrible literature. But nonetheless, they were at the time what we now call a a very big deal. They certainly thought so. But the the point is that they were really acute Protestant nationalists. They had this intensely Protestant uh, redemption complex about their role in world history. And their role was kind of a cultural one. They produced a lot of this literature that went into um, the missionary organizations and the colleges and the universities in the United States. I mean, the leader of it was the president of Yale for 40 years, the leader of this. Letter. What
0: was his name?
1: Timothy Dwight. Not 40 years, uh, 20 some years, but he was, Timothy Dwight was a major figure in the history of the, the early United States. He was considered to be the conservative critic or the, the the old, the Federalist Party, which was imploding and falling apart, but which had the Federalist Party had really been this kind of, the New England Gentry Party in the early Republic.
0: Why was it falling apart?
1: Well, this is part of the problem of the Connecticut wits is that they were really so they they produced this literature of Christian nationalism for the United States mm-hmm. and and once they gave up their literary movement which they were very bad at writing literature, but however they proved very good at building institutions and they were very well connected and high-born people and they ran Foundations, uh, rail companies, uh, colleges and universities, not only in the United States, but all over the world. As I said, they founded the American University of Beirut and the American University in Cairo.
0: Okay, I'm going to let you finish, but I have a question that I hope you'll answer. Uh, so they founded the American University of Cairo and the one in Beirut?
1: That's right. I've, be- I've become more interested in the history of education through them because they they produced this kind of uh, extraordinary literature of of nationalism. Some mm-hmm. nationalism that nobody read. Uh, and so they finally gave up after years of writing this awful literature and they turned to institution building. And they basically uh, built a considerable extent post secondary education in the United States. They were extremely influential in, in founding and building colleges and universities.
0: How many did they build and what did they build?
1: Well, they built Amherst. And I mean, the first ones they built were the older New England schools. But then immediately within a first generation, they were being, the, there was this organization called the ABCFM, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it was run from Yale for basically for many years. And um, what the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions did was train Yale students and then induct them into the ministry and then send them out to found the University of Georgia Davidson College, the American University of Beirut, um, Kenyon, Oberlin, those kinds of places. So I don't know how many, but there was a lot of them and there was some influential ones.
0: So this kind of segues into your other article you wrote on Matt, what's his name? Stolberg's, is that his name? Stoller. Stollers. um blog uh about abolishing ivy leagues can you just quit we'll, we'll put a link to it it's a wonderful article please read it but can you just quickly explain what your case is and,
1: and yeah sure that's a little bit it, it's true there's a there's a uh there is some deep deep uh, connection with the the um, interest i have and and the right writing i did on the, the history of these missionary organizations and, and yale but I was really interested in the missionary organization. They just happened to be training all the people for them at at this one school. So I, I wrote uh, a piece, um, really co-wrote it with Matt Stoller, on his newsletter, and it was just a, a piece about about how meritocracy has become so anti-democratic because of the com- the concentration of wealth and power at these uh, at these schools.
0: Yeah, I've looked at a one uh, study where they said something like. Where I know I can, uh, I don't have it off the top of my head, but there are actually in absolute numbers, more people from the top 1% inside of Yale uh, Yale and Harvard than
1: the bottom bottom 60%. Exactly.
0: Okay. So let's say that there's a thousand people and there are 10 super rich people and there are 600 poor people, not poor, but poor to middle class to poor people. They have more like they have more students in absolute numbers from the small group of ten than right. they do in the large group of six hundred. That's
1: right. That's okay. right. Well, this, I, I
0: just wanted to make sure as, yeah, uh, no, this uh, statistics is, are kind of hard for to explain over radio, so I was
1: this <laughs> is isn't my work or insight. This is all I'll, I just cited some figures as many people have in the piece. From the economist Raj Chetty, who's at who's at Harvard and has and was at Stanford and and won the John Bates Clark Medal in economics, which is like the I think sort of like the Nobel for young economists. So this is like a very establishment guy, <laughs> uh, and he did a big study. He led a big study uh, for years that now well, three or four years ago released its results, and and just has has really kind of confirmed uh, his study. I think has has as let's say. It got a lot of publicity, but it's one of those things that is still, I think, actually remains underappreciated because partly of what's been happening in the sense of the um, really the collapse of public education uh, and post-secondary public education in the United States over the last generation. So it's one thing to have these great, rich universities, which weren't nearly as rich then, you know, when you also have a great University of Michigan and great University of Wisconsin. That's where I went. went University of Michigan. Yeah. Ah, my mother lives in Ann Arbor.
0: Oh, cool. <laughs>
1: both both of my parents went there. In fact, that's where they met. Uh, ah. so I, I have I have Ann Arbor, uh, Ann Arbor roots in a way. That's
0: adorable. That's cool.
1: <laughs> and um, anyway, what uh, Raj Chetty's work showed was was exactly as you said, just that the disproportionate representation of the, really the richest people in the country, which were some of the richest people in the world at the uh, most elite schools is you know, pretty extreme numbers.
0: Exactly. Okay. So now uh, let's not talk about their other uh, uh, effects. Oh, my God. Um, But, th- yeah, please check out that article. It's extremely interesting, and it's an extremely good case. Um, and... So getting back to the main subject at hand. um, Okay, so Tim, they opened up all these universities all over the country and the world. And this is the question I had for you. Often we see that there's a big group of intellectuals who are extremely wrong, uh, like the 2008 crash or Mm -hmm. any other uh, example of that. Mm -hmm. So is that the way of... um, doing the manufacture of consent or hegemony like mm-hmm. was that the intent and if it wasn't the intent they clearly succeeded but if it was not the intent how did it they- was the intent
1: yeah they very much was the intent they went into culture after they failed in politics and they're basically so there was this political party in the united states that was very important called the federalist party uh it was sort of the founding party of the united states and but then in the early u.s the Federalists become splinters and becomes isolated mostly in new england contained to new england and and the best way to describe the federalists is maybe they're kind of like what what the british used to call uh tory socialists which is that they really rejected a lot of the ideas from the the age of revolution about natural equality Uh, they thought a lot of those Claims in which people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were associated, and which became such foundational bedrock ideas of, of so many of uh, revolutions at that time, important revolutions at the time. They really rejected those as sort of self-evidently absurd that people were equal or should be equal. So that's the Tory part, but somewhat tongue-in-cheek, they were called Tory socialists. The socialist part is that at the same time they were often genuinely, uh, for other reasons than political principle. Shocked at the way that both slaveholders and capitalists treated people, and and they made they tried to make the case that their patrician society was was gentler than than the capitalists or the or the slaveholders, but this wasn't very popular. So their political party kind of falls apart, and they turn to culture, school building, schools, newspapers, so publishing houses.
0: Supreme <laughs>
1: Yeah, all the Supreme Court, your law schools too. Thank you for bringing that. Yeah, they also founded the, all these law schools, and and law and literature, uh, and 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 science were became their specialities in teaching these things. And of course, they taught a lot of like really intensely nationalist propaganda too.
0: Yeah, I I mean that's the one thing that I did not realize until I looked this up, but. They are instrumental in how they've created the U.S. legal system or whatever it became, especially because how much power a judge has to, quote, unquote, interpret laws and just render parts of clauses just not applicable and ignore it. And there's so much politics, but they've been able to smuggle so much of that under the guise of neutrality. And no one realizes that.
1: (laughs) So you 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 know what you're talking about because I know you're a lawyer. So tell me more. You know, I mean, this because I think this is one of their main legacies is uh, building stable, especially legal and educational institutions.
0: Well, I would say that so far they've been very political, especially with regards to the First Amendment. For some odd reason, in the 1900s, child labor laws to ban child labor was seen as a violation of the first amendment um so they've had a very reactionary anti-labor anti-worker role in all of america so uh like the supreme court so i'm one of those people who think you need to just like start all over and do a new constitution <laughs> but yeah that's what i would say
1: well the constant so this is if we can can i skip ahead to something because i want to there's there's one thing that I maybe maybe is a point worth making. It's just that it is this this constitutionalism exactly this constitutionalism that is one of the legacies of these Christian nationalists these Protestant nationalists in America, and this obsession with texts and especially the texts of the revolutionary era as sacred, and and this idea <laughs> that that we must somehow I mean the U.S. Constitution is a, just such a do, is a document that its reputation so f- among Americans so far outweighs its performance and its its effectiveness that I think uh, this has to be, the reverence for this document, in spite of its bad record, has to be, uh, rather has to be considered part of this Protestant legacy. Ah,
0: um, it, it, so it's kind of like an analogy to, I guess, the word of God that was written in stones, or is, is well, that how they it's, did it?
1: It's, it's kind of like, a, it goes back to, I mean, this was Martin Luther's, a sort of foundational Protestant claim, right, that, that I could read this to the Catholic Church, that I could read this text myself in its supposedly original meaning, and, and that, that gives me the truth. And you hear a sort of legacy of this when the extent to which Americans will discuss, you know, not constitutional lawyers, but just normal people will say if things like, uh, just what a big question it is in our country if something is so-called constitutional.
0: Oh, my God. You know,
1: as far as I can figure out, whatever constitutional is just whatever five Supreme Court justices say is constitutional.
0: Exactly. That's
1: all constitutional means. But you'll hear just like, you know, man and woman on the street say, well, oftentimes, at least, um, maybe uh, too much, obviously, for my taste, like instead of, is that a good idea or would that work or is that fair? Or would that be effective? <laughs> They'll talk about is it constitutional or not, and I think this is. So I think this is a, a, a um, something that at least we should be aware of uh, that it's kind of evading the political question um, uh, to to, to uh, redirect everything in terms of constitutionality in this way.
0: Yeah, it is, and on top of it, it seems to not. There's a very anti-democratic part to that. If, like as we can see, there's only a certain group of people who can afford to litigate all the way to. The, it costs. I mean, a lawyer costs five hundred dollars an hour or something. If you're going to litigate it all the way to the Supreme Court, so there is only a certain kind of foundation, certain kind of people. You kind of need money. So then you are always representing the class of the rentiers, or at least they're the ones who can get. All the quote unquote rights afforded to them by the Constitution litigated. <laughs> right?
1: Absolutely. The extent to which political questions in the u s. become battles between extraordinarily expensive lawyers uh, who are like on cable television instead of becoming political questions is is just, sometimes very depressing, but a real problem. I mean, the the role of the lawyer and the prosecutor in the United States politics, Those those changing now in some ways, it seems. Oh, Lord, better.
0: the press don't even, oh, oh, that's another discussion. Uh, prosecutors have way too much power. They can drop any case they want. They can keep any case. And every case is a political decision on their part.
1: So the constitutionalism is one thing. The, the, the role of this sacred text as a center of the political culture Mm-hmm. I think this is really a, a, a deeply Protestant thing in some ways, and a legacy of of how influential Protestantism has been in shaping American nationalism. That idea that we can just go back to the text and read it and find the truth, and that, and that that's a popular thing, that everybody should do it. Um, I think this is, again, just a... Um,
0: well, I wish people who do cite the Constitution will read it, because there's some horrific things <laughs> in it.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> and there's and there's some things not in it that should be. I mean, it's very retrograde to have a constitution that has no social dimension to it, right? Mm-hmm.
0: And it was done in the most undemocratic way to serve an undemocratic purpose. I mean, Madison literally said the purpose of our constitution is to protect those with property from those without I've written an article so I can link it, but it's literally that.
1: Please send it to me. I want to read it. And and the person, I mean, the person I'm very uh, in debt to here, and you should, I'll send you a link to his book. He's the best. name says, Sandy Levinson, Sanford Levinson, a legal scholar. He's the big, he's at Harvard and Texas. He's, I think he splits his time between those schools, or at least he used to. But he's the big sort of eminent legal scholar who's the most anti-U.S. Constitution. <laughs> uh, and and uh, Sandy Levinson has a great case for why the Constitution is horrible and why it's bad for democracy and why Americans should get rid of it.
0: Oh, absolutely. I would love to interview him.
1: Okay, we know to ditch the Constitution. So what should we read instead? Subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com to check out other episodes of the podcast, our newsletter, and find out how to catch our live streams on Twitch and YouTube. That's historically.substack.com. Also, do you need the perfect follow up to Catterday? Learn more about feline friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov on Twitch by tuning into our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically
0: okay so now coming back to your book oh we learn about the influence of the american bible society in even early eight, mid 1800 not early but mid 1800s They're yes. printing the american version well what version of the bible they're printing I, it seems like they've translated into so many languages yes so what's going on there
1: well, it's really a global phenomenon. I have the figures in my book, but I don't remember them all.
0: Well, we will put them up. Um, but yes, we got the figures. But just, uh, can you talk about the logistics and what they're doing and why and what's going on there?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really so it's really a global thing. The Americans get together, the the New Englanders, especially sort of reunite with their British cousins. Uh, uh, And this is the political kind of backdrop or the political story that that makes all of this happen is that these New Englanders have lost political power to the planters. Um, The planters ruled the U.S. from the revolution with the exception of John and John Quincy Adams through the Civil War, through the beginning of the Civil War, the first time since the Adamses that an anti-slavery president is elected is Lincoln, and the South secedes. Um, ah, okay. And and that's that's not how the New Englanders thought this was going to go. <laughs> so they really thought that they were going to be running the country. They really believed that they were going to be the presidents and the secretaries of state and uh, uh, secretary of war. And uh, But they can't win any elections because nobody likes them. And there are, you know, real elections. They're there obviously... Don't include all sorts of people that we include now, uh, for good reason. Uh, uh, okay, but th- s-
0: s- hold on. So because the elections are made in a way to kind of advantage rural districts, the planters automatically have more power, right?
1: That's true. That's true, yes. So, so I mean, there's a competition basically throughout 19th century American history between between Northeastern capitalists and Southern planters, the uh, slaveholders, for voters. And basically, the planters, the slaveholders, win most of that contest. <laughs> <laughs> they, get, they get elected more often for a number of reasons. The biggest reason is, of course, the three-fifths clause, because it gives them, you know, ah. basically, what is it, 60 votes for the House of Representatives for every, uh, every 100 slaves they own.
0: Wow. I, I didn't even think about it that way. But yes, you're right. That just is utterly rigged. <laughs>
1: so the, I mean, the three-fifths clause now, because of, of, I think it was part of the 60s Black Power Movement that it got coined into that rhetorical move of uh, the Constitution says that people of African descent are three-fifths of a human or three-fifths of a man. I mean, that that may be effective rhetoric, but that's not what it says. It says that basically... That for every hundred slaves the planters own, they get sixty votes for the House of Representatives. Wow, that's what it meant, and everybody understood that's what it meant at the time. And there was this—I think it was um, there. Were, there were some. I, I don't want to. Maybe I, I don't want to repeat them, but there were some very off, off-color remarks from from Northerners such as Benjamin Franklin and, and John Adams about the Southerners' Three-Fifths Clause.
0: I know that John Adams himself always prided himself on, even though he kind of did some litigation on behalf of certain shipping companies, like he prided himself on not personally having slaves. But Benjamin Franklin, I thought he, was he also an urban dweller too?
1: Very much so, yes, uh, absolutely. And I mean, the Three Pits Clause is one of the things that, so this Christian nationalist movement that is based in Connecticut and, and Yale Little known fact, but but they they actually tried to secede from the United States in 1814,
0: 1850. Awesome. Why and how and why did it fail?
1: Because they're upset about the War of 1812, because they've lost political power to the planters um, a generation almost before that. And as a response, they've sort of reintegrated themselves into the British maritime Mm -hmm. commerce system. And this is why they're in Beirut. This is why they're in... um, uh, now it's what was it called Smyrna, now Izmir. This is why they're in then Constantinople, uh, also but London, Liverpool. So anyway, the point is this Christian nationalist movement, which is based in Connecticut and especially Yale, loses political power to the planters. So they really throw themselves into maritime commerce and insurance industry too. Um, they invented the wonderful book by another person, maybe, maybe worth considering. This wonderful uh, young historian at, at L- in London named Noam Magor, who has a book about called Brahmin Capitalism," about the role of the New England elite in in inventing or or uh, developing American capitalism. And he points out they invent the mutual fund.
0: <laughs> oh, well, how do they invent it? Why do they invent it?
1: Well, I, you have to. Noam could tell you the details better than I can, but but basically they they're very good at what I can tell you is partly out of the, because of their religious culture, they're very good at building sort of stable and long-term institutions um, of education, of commerce, of industry, of publishing. So they do a lot of that. So they have this big cultural influence, even though they've, they've really lost political power. Um, I have a
0: quick question. Um, so around this time, as you mentioned, that they're doing Maritime uh, X, whatever they're doing.
1: Maritime Commerce.
0: Maritime Commerce. Um. Around this time, we see the national security state often coming to their rescue, like mm-hmm. uh, like off the coast of South America, mm-hmm. uh, or like there was something in Indonesia, I believe. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's one of their, yeah, one of their specialities is, and, and Franklin and Adams was certainly like this, of, is one of their specialities is keeping themselves one step removed from slavery, mm-hmm. but... Really just one step and and being very successful at providing the kind of business infrastructure for slavery. So, like, all the the, the commodity ships, they're the insurers. Um, Ah,
0: okay. That makes so much sense. So, they're, like, the support structure for slavery. Very much so. So, they personally didn't own slaves, but they were like the surrounding businesses that popped up because slavery. Very exists. much so.
1: They they but but it was very they were very proud and self-righteous about the fact that they didn't own slaves. In fact and one of the things when there was this movement called the Hartford Convention to secede from the US, they issued a letter to the president Madison demanding that the three-fifths clause from the Constitution be repealed.
0: It's kind of funny because at the same time, they're like, for example, they're opposing Simone Bolivar's liberation movement. I believe like he wrote something like these new Englanders are destined to plague the rest of America with, with yes. misery under the guise of liberty or something like that. And and it, so it's kind of like I see that same phenomenon going here too. Like Democrats are all up in arms about alleged white nationalists yes. on January 6th, but then they also support the Azov battalion in Ukraine. Well, you or- know,
1: you know why they were against Bolivar. No, because he was Catholic in part.
0: Ah, I did not know that. Yeah,
1: in part, not just. But so, but
0: what? What was yes. their problem with Catholicism, other than the fact that they couldn't control it and there was a pope?
1: <laughs> well, they thought that, uh, and and many Americans thought this. And you know, Kennedy was the first Catholic president until Biden. Biden's only the second Catholic president. But they, they really thought that, I mean, to put it in political terms, they thought that Catholicism couldn't be the basis of a free and successful independent republic or country. They thought that, it, that any, and this was part of their, you know, of course, maybe rationalization, but it was a very deep rationalization that they also believed for opposing Bolivar and for opposing a number of uh, 19th century uh, Latin South American independence movements was the role of Catholicism. Which they thought necessarily led people to be ignorant and superstitious and illiterate and prone to authoritarian <laughs> government. Uh, mm. So they, they really believed you had to have a, a Protestant population in order to have a, an independent and free country.
0: That's a very interesting belief, I guess. Um, was there also a religious justification? Did they believe that Catholics were demons from hell or like? Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, they they, they, they saw it and there was a theological element to it, but there's a surprisingly common view. I mean, David Hume, for example, also believed this, that just as a matter of fact, any free society would have to be a Protestant society first before it could become free. So, you know, the, was there a theological? They, how would I put the theological? It's a good question. Um, they would say that because they were, themselves evangelicals in a way they they would distinguish between the you know the people and the religion and they would say the people if you want to put it in theological terms were benighted or beholden to an authoritarian and despotic fake religion hmm. and I'm they kind of
0: familiar okay
1: <laughs> i mean that th- that would be a kind of genteel way of putting it um they Leading members of New England society and uh, Timothy Dwight, for example, the longtime president of Yale, he and, and his many protégés. They also often referred to the, the, Vatican, the Vatican, either the Vatican or the Catholic Church in general, in more um, disparaging and colorful terms, such as a favorite one was the Whore of Babylon. Wow. Um, another one was, was the, the Mother of Darkness and Harlotry.
0: Wow. So there's also like a moral condemnation of some kind of lifestyle there too, right? They
1: were they were convinced, as they put it, and they, this actually made its way into a much neglected. Um, <laughs> I quote it a couple of times, but but nobody seems that some people some people are interested. But it, they actually made it into uh, a statement of the Continental Congress when the Continental Congress issued a letter uh, to to the people of Great Britain. Um, after the, the uh, Quebec Act, making peace with Catholicism, with French, French Canada, mm-hmm. which Britain, Britain made peace with French Canada with the Quebec Act in 1775, um, I think. And the Continental Congress issues a letter to Britain, and not to the parliament, but to the people of Great Britain. They address the people of Great Britain and tell them that their parliament has betrayed them by making peace with a religion that is responsible for drenching the world in blood and superstition. so it, mm. they were ex- they, it's it's hard to overstate how um, yeah, theological and and um, villain-like and dark. I mean, they they saw it as in religious terms. They saw it as a force of evil.
0: One thing you mention in your book is that these um New England Christians who kind of sent missionaries all over the world, had an advantage in that they had highly paid missionaries and also on top of that they got allowances and then there was the sure so it was a different colonial project than say what came before then right yes
1: yeah they were basically they were very good at this again goes back to they they had they were quite rich um so they they hired young men, almost always young graduates of Andover, Yale, or Williams. They hired these young men and paid them very well to go all over North America and, and all over the world and preach the gospel.
0: But it seems like they also got some kind of local resistance. So you talk about John Taylor, who wrote seeding articles of what they're doing, and he even called them uh, New England yes. rats. Like, and then something he called them like they're like vampires. No, they're leeches for blood is what he said.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. There was a there was a big anti-mission movement in the United States. It was a it was an internal fight. With, it was a fight within Protestantism. But the rest of American Protestants, I could say, had the same reaction in some ways to these these um, New England missionaries as as much of the rest of the world did, which is. They were terrible at converting people to their religion. They they were really bad at converting people to their religion. So, you don't have, you have some, but you don't have a lot of Congregationalists and Presbyterians of the New England type in the places that they were all over China. They went to India. You have some, but they generally were not very good at converting people. So, they converted a very small number of people. Uh, But here's again where we go back to the institutions. Their bigger legacy in some ways is they were, again, good at building schools in these places.
0: Well, I guess it's different. Like in India, the British had success because they also had the army to kind of enforce Christianity. <laughs> so when you don't have that state power, there's no incentive to join Christianity or whatever the religion they're preaching.
1: <laughs> That's a good point. That's right. That's uh, right.
0: So then they built a lot of schools. And what else did they...
1: Banks. They built banks. <laughs> they built a lot of banks too.
0: Oh, banks. Okay. So do tell <laughs> yeah. us about the banks that they built and how it was connected.
1: Um, again, this is primarily isn't my work. This is partly Noam McGore's work. Uh, Sven Beckert's book, first book, talks about them. in Money uh, Money, uh, Money, Metropolis is Sven's book. And again, Brahmin Capitalism is Noam's book. So the American Bible Society and the American Tract Society, for example, these became kind of social clubs for uh, ambitious and, and well-to-do rich people, in, especially in New York and to some extent in Boston, too. And um, a lot of business deals were made there. A lot of investments were made from banks to, to manufacturers and printing presses and railroads. Um, but it was a kind of social club, sort of like the Ivy League is today, uh, where you make connections to people. And uh, you try to, as they would say, maybe do do well by doing good or do good by doing well, whatever. But they were very successful uh, capitalists, basically, extremely successful. Uh, so banks, insurance companies, shipping companies, yeah.
0: um, you also mentioned that one of the earliest exposes was written by this anonymous um author about the American Bible Society. And he talks about their kind of little bit um less than um, well, there's like a philanthropic exterior. There's a lot of internal profiteering.
1: Yes, there was a best-selling book called an inside. I think it's called an insider's exposé of the American Bible Society. Uh, there was, uh, I don't know if it was best-selling. It was a popular book in um, 1820 or 21, I believe. I'm not. Uh, I think it was it? And. It did make spe- a lot of specific allegations about the American Bible Society, about corruption at the American Bible Society, but they really weren't, in some ways, very shocking. Even if they were, probably in some sense, generally accurate. But it, it's more that it played to a, a, a real public appetite uh, of for disparaging and, and a real public disdain uh, for this class of people in the United States for for bankers and New England missionaries, and there was a lot of popular contempt for them and a close association in the, in the public's mind, uh, especially with a lot of uh, migrants or settlers into the interior who, who um, the, maybe the best way to put it is that nobody hated these New England bankers and missionaries more than other <laughs> kinds of Protestants like Baptists and Methodists and Millerites and and any number of other dozen or more kinds of So
0: you kind of, uh, this kind of segues into something that is very talked about, but I didn't understand it until I read your book. But in about 1820, I believe the 1824 election, Andrew Jackson has a platform that's kind of like we're going to federalize the blanks and we're going to like regulate them kind of platform. And is there a connection uh, that made it popular? Like what were they doing domestically that made them Frowned upon.
1: Well, the banks were associated. That's a great. I mean, that is the political question. I mean, as as a lot of people know, uh, among at these a lot of historians know, Andrew Jackson ran on for president uh, and and won a lot of support with this very uh, vocal anti bank campaign. There was a there was a Bank of the United States. There was a national or federal bank. It was called actually the Second Bank of the United States. And it was a very popular thing for Jackson. Um, and historians have somewhat puzzled over this because the bank's record was sort of mixed, actually. And the bank was doing some, as far as you one measures these things, by the standard of capitalism in 19th century America. It was a fairly responsible and and sort of professional organization, let's say. But nonetheless, there was this extraordinarily popular campaign for Jackson of uh, pledging to dismantle the bank and destroy the bank. I think one of his campaign slogans was, "I will kill the beast before it kills me," and that referred to the Second Bank of the United States. So, so historians sort of puzzled over the extent of this hate, the hate, popular hatred for the bank um, to some extent. But that that is because it was associated in people's minds, and for some good reasons, with uh, extensive land speculation, and especially with poor farmers who were migrants or settlers into the interior of North America, uh, being priced out of or cheated out of land.
0: Mm, that sounds familiar.
1: Yes. They associated the Bank of the United second Bank of the United States, with basically like probably with a lot of things that. Were "quote unquote" normal for an early capitalist economy, like currency fluctuations, land runs, and land speculation—these mm-hmm. sorts of things—that the bank did play a role in, but probably wasn't themselves as responsible for as a lot of people in the public actually believed.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: but nonetheless, basically, the banks and the missions were the same people. Uh, they were literally the same people. <laughs> Serving on the same same people, were serving on the boards of the United uh, Second Bank of the United States, as on the American Bible Society board and the American Tract Society board, uh, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, and they were the same people who were then making money with what with what becomes Wall Street. The American Bible Society office is on the corner of Nassau and Wall Street.
0: Ah, still
1: no. Now it's moved to. Uh 66th and Broadway you've probably passed it. Uh, it's right next to Lincoln Center. It's a new it's a modernist glass building now.
0: In- interesting. I did not realize that. Okay, but
1: they have so- a great museum. You can go and they give good, they give really good tours if you go.
0: Oh, okay. I might do that. So, Andrew Jackson did somehow change the banking system after he got elected. Like, what did he do?
1: Oh, he made it this kind of crusade to to use the the obvious word to to yeah to destroy the bank. He really hated the bank, it seems too. Uh, So I mean the the his contempt for the bank was real and and he sort of and he he succeeds in 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 really damaging the the bank uh, fantastically. So it's it's up for debate whether this what economic effects this had for, for even for many of the people who hated the bank, because there was there can there, there, there then then even some greater currency runs and, and land speculations and, and uh, market crashes occurred. So, you know, it, it's not clear that Jackson's success in destroying the bank by any means was benefited the people that supported it. Let me put it that way. But this is a very different bank than the banks of today. And I mean it's it's hard to overstate the difference between this. Is not like a bank like JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs. This is a very small um, uh, kind of New England and, and it was based in Philadelphia operation. But it, it, it's there's a, there's some, a relationship, or a, a history, obviously, but it's a very different kind of enterprise.
0: And so when it was tied that much with the religion, I, I guess I'm trying to see like what came after this when it was tied to yeah. the colonial project?
1: What comes after it? And. Again, this isn't just my my view. There's a lot of scholars who've written about this. Different, different. Some some very well known people have written about again this legacy of cultural and 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 financial and political institutions that this Christian nationalist or Protestant nationalist movement that really comes out of New England and then in the mid 19th century gets hooked up with New York capital and expands from from these schools and missions into. New York banking and New York railroads, uh, and and uh, New York insurance companies. What what you really get is what comes out of it is a kind of uh, northeastern elite or an American upper class. This sort of WASP and and predominantly, overwhelmingly Anglo Protestant American aristocracy that that really rules until when? Like the nineteen sixties, seventies. <laughs> uh, now, in some ways, uh, but but really was sort of almost hegemonic until that time.
0: Okay, so now you're making me rethink the Civil War. So, how much of the Civil War was a fight for control between the p- planter class and the urban class?
1: Wait, how am I making you rethink the Civil War? I th- I don't want to make you rethink this. I think you I think you you're on a, you're right with the <laughs> you are with the Civil War. How much of it was a control? Well. So remember earlier, I mentioned that, that maybe the best way to say this is that one way of looking at 19th century American history uh, over the course of a longer, you know, long time over most of the century is this contest between the planters and the Northeastern capitalists for small farmers mainly uh, to, to vote for them. And the Civil War is when the capitalists finally finally win that contest and get an anti-slavery president.
0: Interesting. That's a very profound rethinking for me because, I mean, after I read your book, I was making connections and suddenly it's like, oh, the Civil War looks completely different now.
1: <laughs> well, wow, there's a lot of people now, too, and I'm not a scholar of the causes of the Civil War, but but I mean, this is a fact that Lincoln is the first <laughs> for anti-slavery uh, president elected in the South secedes and he, it is, affected. So is a fact that this isn't Barrington I'm basically uh, staying, staying with Barrington Moore's interpretation here, the great historical sociologist, but because um, there's a lot of people now who argue that you know everybody is just totally capitalist in the 19th century America and the slaveholders are the biggest capitalists of all and it's just these different kinds of capitalism uh, that are competing um, so that's the new way to look at it, but but um, uh, the more kind of historical, uh, an older-fashioned way, or or is that this is a a contest between capitalists and planters for the voters of small for the votes of small farmers between the northeastern capitalists and the planters who are of course involved in the world capitalist economy in profound ways. Of course, I don't I don't dispute that. But um, yeah, they so the the, the 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 northern capitalists finally get an anti-slavery president in 1860 and the south and the south leaves
0: so um i'm a little confused about that if they were already profiting from those slavery adjacent industries what was the
1: they became convinced that they could profit more from free labor
0: ah got it got it got it okay
1: is is the short answer they became convinced they could profit more from free labor
0: so, sometime like in the late 1800s to the early 1900s, America becomes super industrialized and Teddy Roosevelt goes on the trust busting yes. thing and there's a big corporate monopoly. Yes. Uh, so, how did the religious nationalism change with that or how did it affect it? What happened there?
1: That's a very good question. And I. I have no idea. I have to, okay, <laughs> I no worries. To uh, to
0: okay, we'll just cut this. Um, Robert, just delete this. Okay. So then... Um, you can
1: leave it in too. It's good that... that uh, some, I'm sure there's... there's a, I can think of a couple of people who could tell you answer that better than me, though.
0: Okay, so can you let us know, like, what are you working on now? Um, I love this book and I recommend everyone... We'll, we'll put a link in the description box. But what are you working on for your future projects?
1: Um... Too soon to be discussed.
0: Okay. <laughs> Too soon
1: to be discussed. I'm working a lot on my, on my. Uh, I'm working a lot on editing actually because <laughs> I work full time as an editor. So I'm working on a lot of different people's work right now, um, and that's mainly what I'm doing. Well,
0: okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Like, do you have a website where can they find you? Um-
1: I'm going to have a website soon. In the meantime, you can find me pretty easily on Twitter, uh, where I, where I have a, a sort of micro niche.
0: Oh yeah, it's great. I mean, like I said, I was in awe of your article you wrote, and that's kind of how, what led me to your book. And I'm—I I looked at your profile. I'm like, oh my! I've been wanting to do an episode about this for a while, and so it just worked out. So,
1: well, thank you so much for having me on. No, the no, show. thank you
0: for coming. I'm and I'm a big
1: fan, and um I'm and a its a real big honor.
0: fan. Like I loved your book. It, it was one of the fastest books I've like. It's about. Three fifty pages, and it took me like just a weekend to read because it wow. was so interesting to me. <laughs> well,
1: thank you very much. I'm very grateful for for um, uh, all of this uh, from you. Thank That's you so great. much. Thank I you. Hope. Sure, I'm I'm uh, really grateful to you.
0: But, yep. Have a very good rest of that afternoon then.
1: You too. Bye thank bye. Thank you again. Bye bye.
0: Music for this show is done by Retek. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H And thank you for listening to our show.